Well, friends, we're in the middle of our yearly series on the disciplines of grace and emphases that we have here at Emmanuel that we've always had. We looked at how Christ and our love for him stands at the center of everything we do from 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. We've seen how God's word governs our worship and influences even our philosophy of ministry from Deuteronomy 12 and 1 Peter 1 Timothy 3. Last week, we looked at how God is pursuing his own glory in Christ through the church forever from Ephesians 1, 2 and 3. We've also paused along the way to explain various ways these texts and themes apply to us as our church and in our history. Loved ones, I, I want to keep saying, I hope that in a word, this series just helps. I hope it helps you in your own walk with Christ. Of the message, hope to clarify whether you should join here or remain here or find another congregation that you can be a part of in our area. Next week, in fact, there's a pastor from our area who will be here preaching for us. His church would be a great church for you to be a part of. Uh, my wife and I were part of that church before, and some of you were here as well. Um, Lord willing, next Sunday, Pastor Trent Hunter of Heritage Bible Church will be here speaking from us from Greer. Trent and I and some others here in church, as we've done in the past and will do this week, will be part of a preaching workshop all next week. Um, good, exhausting time called Simeon Trust. It'll be held across town at Heritage Bible Church. And it's a time for me and, and other men in the church who are going to spend concentrated time on knowing how to study the Bible. That's what the whole week will be about. There are, there are many bad ways to study the Bible. There are better ways to study the Bible. And while in one sense anybody can do it, that's why we're always commending and encouraging you to study the Bible with somebody else. We have a number of books in our, our, in our bookstall. Yet while, while, while anyone can do it, on the other hand, it's harder than it looks, uh, especially if you've got a group or of any relative size. So not all approaches are, are good. Not all interpretations are valid. The worst question you can ask in the Bible study is, what does this mean to you? doesn't matter what it means to you. That's one of the worst questions to ask. So not 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 all approaches are good. Um, the, every book of the Bible has its deeper parts. It's more controversial sections that take a measure of practice, skill and navigating. So Paul can command Timothy, make sure you rightly divide the word of truth. Apparently in Ephesus, as in today, there are ways to study the Bible was happening in Ephesus when even well intentioned can bring a measure of harm, not in accord with what Paul calls sound teaching. So we don't want to break the ninth commandment when I preach or when we study the Bible and say something the Bible says that it doesn't actually say. That is lying. Bible study then always to be done with care. It is God's word, after all. There are ways then to approve and get better and be corrected and so on. So at least once a year, as your pastor, I meet with other pastors for an entire week across two or three states to get correction and encouragement and improvement because I want to make every effort, as Paul commands, make every effort to rightly divide the word of truth. Well, at the end of that long, busy week, I mean, mean, it's not, we say long weeks, it's just a normal week, but it feels really long at the end of next week, which takes a full week of preparation and correction. And I'm not sure that's right, Brad, and I don't know if you should say that. I'm sure the text says, yes, thank you. Then Trent and I usually swap pulpits so we're not preparing anything new for the next week. So so I I will have the honor next week at preaching at Heritage, and I always am. I'm indebted so much as a, as my own family, my own marriage, and we are as a congregation because that congregation there at Heritage helped get us started. Trent, I won't be able to here to introduce him next week, but Trent, he's been the pastor of Heritage for the last several years. I'm grateful for him. Now, on top of once a year meeting, I meet once a month with Trent and another pastor where we critique and evaluate uh, one another's sermons. So if you have critiques and you want to feed them to me through Trent, you can do that. Say, say this to Brad next time. Once a month, we do that. It's yet another way to try to improve and get better at studying the Bible as we sharpen one another, correct, and encourage each other. We have a, a few books that Trent has actually done on studying the Bible in the bookstall. Here's one of them he wrote with uh, Stephen Wellham, who's spoken here with us before. Uh, Stephen Wellham, Christ from beginning to end, it gets the whole story of the Bible. That's there in the bookstall, so we're helpful for that too. We have even posted an article too, uh, or two by Trent, that reposted it from Desiring God, uh, where he writes about, uh, how applying the misguided lens of critical race theory and intersectionality to Trent's multiracial family would actually blow his family apart in the gospel too. 
So it's the kind of article that might help you know where we as a church are on that kind of thing. Think more biblically and whether you're comfortable or not as us as a church thinking through the gospel and its implications in, in that particular way. Well, all that's to say we're glad for Heritage, thankful for Trent, uh, grateful for his work on a number of levels. And next week, Lord willing, he's going to preach for you from the book of Hebrews. So receive him warmly. I know that you will. I have no idea what he's saying about my being there this morning, but that's what I said about his being here this morning. Well, this morning, uh, beloved, we'll look at another discipline of grace that needs to be part of every church's life. It's the discipline of prayer. Would you please locate Ephesians? It's in, the, it's in part two of the Christian Bible, Ephesians. We continue to use Ephesians in this brief series, and we'll get to Ephesians 3 in a moment. Here's the question I want us to think about this morning. Uh, what should we pray for in a church like ours? What kind of things should we pray about? Now, at one level, we can pray about anything. After all, does not the Lord say in 1 Peter 5, cast all your care on him because he cares for you? And a, a glorious thing about that passage is that he's not saying he cares for the things you care about, but he cares for you. Cast your care on him because he actually cares for you. And does not he command us to pray, as Rhett showed us from Matthew 6.11, does he not command us to pray to give us this day our daily bread? So at one level, yes, we bring everything to him. He's our father, after all, and he cares for us. And yet, what we pray about reveals what we value, and what we pray about most reveals what we value most. So what do you value? Well, one way to find out about what you value is by reflecting on what you pray about most. It's common. You've got an allergy. Your child has an allergy. You're on a diet. You make a food diary and a food journal, and you just track what you've eaten and what might set you off. Well, I wonder if you tracked what you pray about. Because whatever you pray about most is what you value the most. Thus, while we all are to bring all of our cares to him, might there be some cares that in the sweep of eternity carry greater weight than other cares? After all, before the Lord taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, did he not command us to pray first, let your kingdom come and let your will be done? Do you see? We cast all our care on him and praise the Lord that we can. We've sung all morning how he loves us. Father like he 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 father like he gently bears. I can't remember that line of the hymn, but you you get it. And does not the Lord's own prayer teach us then, however, that some cares are, are, are more weight than others? Is there is there something greater than our temporal needs alone? So. If what we pray about reveals what we value most, then what do your prayers, our prayers, show that we value? And if some concerns in prayer carry a greater priority than others, then do our most treasured values, revealed by what we pray for, line up with the priorities of prayer in the Bible? So, for example, in the life of a person or church, If that person or church's life is, now listen carefully, is largely occupied with prayers for things like good days at work and doing well on a test and more riz with the ladies and and gallbladder or a headache or, or a different a different job or a new house or the like. Then what do those requests reveal that largely occupy us about what we value most? Again, beloved, we cast all our care on the Lord. But remember that every one of us is a terminal case. And if the Lord delays, we will all perish. And will the things that tend to occupy our prayers most matter much in a hundred years, much less in 10 billion years of a measureless eternity? Now, I'm, I wrote this yesterday, not knowing what the prayer service would be like this morning. So I'm thankful this didn't happen this morning. But I'm giving some application before we go into the text and then give more application. On occasion, a corporate prayer time can be almost entirely taken up with physical kinds of matters. 
And even when they are with little apparent awareness to a spiritual dimension in those matters. Every now and again, that's fine in the life of a church. But if our prayers personally, as a family, as a shepherding group, as a church family, become occupied by those things. Then the Lord forgive us for such an impoverished view regarding things that matter most. With an endless eternity in mind, what things should be the primary matters we pray for regarding a church? Our children the member sitting next to you this morning, and so on. So here's where we're going this morning. I'll state a theme and then, and then spell out where we're going. If the word governs our worship, then it ought to govern our praying too. Lord, teach us to pray, the disciples asked. So here's our simple point this morning. Here's what I'm going for, and then I hope to show it to you from Ephesians 3. Let the Bible's words shape your words as you pray, and let the Bible's priorities shape your priorities as you pray. Let the Bible's words become your words as you pray, and let the Bible's priorities be the priorities that show up in your prayers and in our prayers. There we have it. Let's turn to Ephesians 3 for help. So Paul comes to the end of part one in this letter. And when he comes to the end of this letter, he bows to pray. It's the second time he prays in part one. I want to listen and learn from Paul as he prays, because just reminding us the priorities of his prayers should be the priorities of our prayers. And the words he uses are the kinds of words we use. Why? Because we want the Bible's words to become our words in prayer. We want the Bible's priorities to become our priorities in prayer. If you want more help in this. There's a book in the bookstall. I read it about 25 years ago. It continues to have an impression on me. There are two rules for Bible reading. I've told you that. One is what do other parts of the Bible say about my passage? The other is what does Don Carson say about this part in the Bible in my passage? So so this book is by Don Carson, where he takes all of Paul's prayers and then he explains how that should change our prayer life as individuals and as a church. So it's just working through the prayers of Paul and how does that teach us to pray That's in the bookstore. Well, let's listen to this prayer and learn how to pray better as a church. Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. This is what Holy Scripture says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, church, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, the height and depth, And that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. According to the power at work within us. To God be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to arrange our thoughts around two categories this morning. Just so you can remember two P's right now. The posture of prayer and the petitions of prayer. Now, my goal was to get through the whole prayer. I'm just getting through the first petition this Lord's Day. Trent will be here next week. And then two weeks from now, we'll finish, Lord willing, Paul's prayer. But first, the posture of prayer and the petitions of prayer, but we'll just look at one of them this morning. Notice first, just simply, the posture of prayer. Paul's approach is in verses 14 to 15. Paul has a physical dimension to his prayer. He says, I bow my knees. 
And we won't spend much time on this one line other to note that the Bible records various postures to prayer. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven to pray in John 17. In 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul speaks of men lifting holy hands as they pray. And the hour of his agony in Gethsemane in Luke 22, the Lord Jesus knelt and prayed. Each posture of prayer you find in the Bible can reveal something different respective to our attitude of prayer. It may be that the thing we're praying about is reflected most in the posture that we use. Here in Ephesians 3, Paul, humbled and overwhelmed by the glorious reality of God's work in Christ through the church, comes to the Lord now in deep humility and reverence and utter dependence on the Lord. So he bows his knees. And he prays. Something simple to think about, but what posture does your prayer take? Probably lying down like this won't help for long. Would a different posture of prayer help you pray to the living God better? How would your posture shape? How you pray or how would what you're praying about show up in your posture, whatever it is, overwhelmed by God's great mercy in Christ. The great apostle Paul is on his knees. But more than his physical posture, more than I'll say his physical approach is his spiritual approach, is his spiritual posture. For this reason. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, at one level, Paul is approaching God in prayer, just as the Lord Jesus taught us. And when you pray, begin this way. Our Father. And yet much of Paul's address of God as Father here stems from how Paul has been speaking of God from the very opening word of this book in, in, in Ephesians 1, chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is reminding us in that church of their new identity. Chapter 1, we are chosen in Christ. We are dead in sin. We are dominated by the prince of the power of the air. We're destined for destruction. But now God has made us alive in Christ. To show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. But God has not only done this for you. Paul's point is to say he's done this for us. He's given us a new identity. And Paul says from us each individually, he's made a one new man. He's remaking the human race. He's remaking humanity that's been torn apart and fractured by sin and the like. So now Ephesians 2.15, he has made one new man and the place of two, Jew and Gentile. He continues, through Christ we both, Jew and Gentile, Now we both have access in one spirit to the Father so that we're no longer strangers and sojourners, but fellow members of the same household of God. Thus, when Paul bows his head and we hear him addressing God as Father, he does so because he remembers what God has done in Christ for that church in Ephesus. That he is father means he's worked to redeem us from our sins. That he sealed us with his spirit. To call God as father is to remember his work in Christ by the spirit. When we pray to God as father, you are remembering the gospel itself. It's to remember that, yes, we are each individually part of a church, but that our lives are irreducibly together. That's Paul's posture of prayer. I bow my knees before the father who's redeemed us all and placed us all in his family. Now, there is indeed one sense that God is the father over all that he has made. Paul can speak of that, that God is the father of all. That is, he's our father in the sense that he made us. And every family on heaven and earth finds its source in God, our father, the maker and creator. Yes. But only those who have turned from their sin and placed all their hope in Christ alone can call God Father in this relational saving sense. 
All may claim him father, that he's our common creator. But you may not call him father in this sense that Paul prays unless he's your redeemer. And it's this relational sense that God is a father who not only made us, but he gave his son to redeem Emmanuel Bible Church from all of our sin. That's the comforting posture of his prayer. This is his approach. That prayer takes place in the context of a relationship with our father who's all powerful and who's all loving and just isn't my father, but it's our father. And and if you have had a poor father. That means you must have an idea of what a good father should be like, or you wouldn't say that he's a poor father. And what this text is pushing on you to think about is that your idea of what a good father should be like is found and sourced in God himself. God himself is the one from whom every notion of fatherhood comes. As a loving and wise father. And this relationship with our father, at times our father, God, may give us what we ask for when we ask it. As a loving and wise father, he may delay in giving us what we ask for. Or he may, in his unsearchable wisdom and love, not give us what we ask for. And if we tell our children no, or they need to wait, now think of this, Here's what here's what happens sometimes in a relationship with God. And let me use the silly example. If if we told our children no or they needed to wait and then they got on Instagram or whatever they do and they say, I've come to realize my dad doesn't exist after all. Why do you ask all of my readers? Because when I asked my dad for something, he didn't give it to me. Therefore, my dad doesn't exist. We wouldn't think. Wow, a greater than Einstein is here. A wiser than Solomon has shown up in our world. His parents did not exist in his mind because they didn't give him what he asked for. No, we would realize, we would think that even difficult and, and pain, yes, that the best of relationships, we realize that the best of relationships have this kind of dynamic to it. Or it's not a relationship and God's just a genie. He's a butler who you pay your tithe to. He's not the power company who has to deliver to you all the time when you say it. He's a father. And if you have doubts this morning that real doubts that God exists because he's not answered prayer, could it be that you've forgotten that he's a father? A person. Who operates in a relationship. And if we know how to give and withhold and delay things to to our children, do you think that God, the father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named might also do the same with us? We relate to God as father in our prayer who not only made us, but he sent his son to redeem us. And he he's full of wisdom and love and power all without bottom or shore. And and as our father, he is more eager to hear us pray than we are to pray to him. He's more eager to answer us than we are to ask of him. He's our father. He loves us. A better father, better than your father or better than than every failing. Your, he, he's, he's a good father. Don Carson writes, above all, the wise father is more interested in a relationship with his son than in merely giving him things. Giving him things constitutes part of the relationship, but not all of it. The father and son may enjoy going out for walks together. Often when the son wants to talk to his dad, not to obtain something or to find out something, but simply because he wants to be with his dad. Now, no analogy is perfect But it's exceedingly important to remember that prayer is not magic, that God is personal, that it's a relationship with our father. Remember then what it means, beloved, and all of its relational depth and all of its complexity and all of its privilege. What it means when you bow your head and you pray our father. Oh, the wisdom and mercy And love we find in conversation with our father. Last night, sometimes I have weird dreams. Uh, I dreamt, both of my parents are with the Lord. And I dreamt I was having a conversation with my mom and dad about what's going on in my life. All I wanted to do is talk to my dad. 
That's what God desires from us. That's the relationship. Father, Father. And now from this posture of prayer, this approach to prayer, we turn to this first petition of Paul's prayer, verses 16 and 17. Here's Paul's first request. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being for this purpose, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul asks that the father would do something. What does he ask the father to do? That he would strengthen believers in that church with power through his spirit. Now, this is the second extended prayer that Paul's given in Ephesians. And chapter one, he prays that the church would, quote, know God better. Ephesians 1.17. He prays that they would know the hope to which God has called them to, Ephesians 1.18. He prays that they would know his incomparably great power, Ephesians 1.19. Well, now as chapter 3 ends, Paul is praying again for power. May he grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. Now, not all power is evil or, or Paul would not pray for it. And, and people without power can be just as evil as people in power. So Paul describes all of us in Ephesians 2 as dead in sin and destined for wrath. Thus the rich and the poor, the Jew and the Gentile, the powerful and not powerful will be in hell outside of Christ. Yet what Paul prays for is not power that's ginned up or whipped up by seven stanzas of the same song, or downing a three-hour energy drink a few times in the afternoon. This isn't earthly power. What Paul prays for is something that no human being can work up or think up. He's praying for something that surpasses knowledge or human effort. This is a power that comes supernaturally, he says, through his spirit. Now, Now, understanding and doing God's will, prayer isn't the only thing that you do about that. But sometimes it's one of the rarest things that we do about this. There are aspects, deep, important aspects of being strengthened by the spirit that come about only through prayer. So Paul prays for this church. Father, would you strengthen this church by your spirit? Elsewhere, Paul encourages us in Romans 8 that if the spirit of Christ who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, then that same spirit who dwells in Christ will raise us from the dead. That's the kind of objective nature of the spirit in us. That's the objective nature of his power. That's an objective reality of the spirit indwelling us. Yes. But Paul is praying for something a bit differently more than just the objective awareness of the Spirit's presence in our life. He's praying that we would come to experience the power of the Spirit at work in our life. Paul is interested in a experiential Christianity. Yes, based on chapters 1, 2, and 3. But that we would experience the transforming power of the Spirit. Not just know about it. And how does that happen? Oh, Father. I pray that they would be strengthened to know your power. And isn't it good to know what we need? That we can pray for that Paul prays for. Father, strengthen them for what they have no strength for. Honestly, at one point this week, I was out walking at night trying to pray. Change of posture, change of scenery, walking, trying to pray. I know this is the text this week, so I'm trying to pray this text as I walk. But I found myself not wanting to pray this passage. I know it was wrong. I told the Lord I knew it was wrong, but I didn't want to pray this passage. I didn't want to pray. I'm out here knowing that I should pray, but I don't want to pray. And then the first words of this request grabbed me. And can I put it this way? Then I really started to pray. Oh, Father, please strengthen me with power so that I should want what I should want, but I don't right now. So that I should desire what I should desire, but I don't right now. Oh, Father, strengthen me by your spirit, please. 
That's the kind of desperation and utter realization of Paul's prayer as he bows his knees before the Father. Father, if you don't strengthen this church by your spirit as an act of grace, they won't be strengthened. Do you believe that? Do you believe there's an aspect to your being strengthened by the Spirit's power that won't come because you're not praying for it? Oh, strengthen me so that I would want what I should want, but don't. I bow my knees. And what is the request for the Spirit given power to be based upon? The beginning of verse 16, he starts, Hear this request, Father, according to the riches of your glory. Uh, No one's ever accused me of being an electrician, but I know enough to know that outlets have certain power ratings and you you plug in certain devices to certain outlets and you're more careful around some outlets than others. And we have little light switches and and circuit breakers if you draw too much power and you get a generator to push out so much wattage depending on the size of your equipment or the size of your house. But all of those things that generate power and resources, they all have their limits. So what is this power of the spirit based upon? Where is this source drawn? What is it based on? And Paul says, this is in accordance with the wealth of your grace, the riches of your grace. The point is, there is no need that we have as a church family that will cause the lights of heaven to flicker. Or to shut off because we're pulling too much power. No, no, no circuit breaker will go off. The phrase reminds us of the privileges we have in Christ, the riches of his grace, the inexhaustible as Christ. All of those things lie at our ready. In Ephesians one, privileges like this, riches like this, our adoption and what that means, our forgiveness. Our redemption, the certainty of heaven. All of which God the Father has lavished upon us. Here is the wealth of his riches, which the spirit strengthen us. Now, as I reflected on this week, according to the riches of his glory, by which he strengthens us through his spirit, this that's inexhaustible as Christ is himself. It's why that the Roman Catholic dogma of the super arrogation of the saints demeans the work of Christ. There is a teaching in the Church of Rome that says that somebody like Mother Teresa, who dies with so much righteousness that she doesn't need all of it, So her excess righteousness can be put into a treasury of merit where it's stored up with from all the other saints who are especially good. So everybody who died with excess righteousness that we'll call saints goes into this treasury of merit so that when ordinary people like you and me need some more righteousness, the church can dip from this treasury of merit from the saints and then give to people. But is not the righteousness of Christ enough? Is it not inexhaustible? Does this kind of thinking, whether it shows up in your life or in the church of Rome, actually blasphemous to the sufficient, inexhaustible work of the Lord according to the riches of His glory, of His grace? Strengthened by all He's done for us in Christ. Father, strengthen them according to the riches of Yourself, of Your Son, of Your Trinitarian bounty. What an inexhaustible treasury God Himself is in the spirit, affected to us by the spirit. And so we sang this morning what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His life was the cost. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And notice not only the source of this prayer, the spirit, the basis is the riches of his glory. But did you notice in particular what Paul prays for in particular? Where is he directing this power from the spirit? May he grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. How how little I'll I'll use a phrase, hyperbole, figure of speech, but how little how little do we pray for this inner man, this inner person compared to the outer man requests that we bring so often. Think about this. The older that the older that some of us get, the slower we get. Whatever vertical we had is now much lower. Our hair falls out 
our vision changes, our back aches here and our knee aches there. We sleep less and use the restroom more in the middle of the night. We start to shake like an old truck heading down the highway. I know that in our day of, you know, uh, purified collagen powders and super smoothies and protein powders and coconut oil and fitness plans that we grind out with new PBRs and watches that can track just about anything we ask them to, that we can outrun decay and death. We can at least slow it down. But we can't. You know that. The muscles shrink and the skins wrinkle and the memory is not what it used to be. And to put it starkly, one day old age will take us no matter how many fancy creams and lotions we use or organic foods we eat, or essential oils we smell. One day old age will get us if cancer or dementia or heart disease doesn't get us first. The outward man is perishing day by day. Read through the New Testament. Mark how much physical suffering or hardship is spelled out explicitly or implied. Then mark out how many times you hear our Lord or the apostles praying for such physical infirmities in contrast with the other requests that they make. I'm not saying it's not there, but just chart those kinds of requests in comparison with the other kinds of requests they make. Our outward man is perishing day by day. We live in a fallen world. So what does Paul pray for? Now, listen, again, there's a lot of correction. And yes, but what do you mean? Of course, Paul has a theology of the human body. He writes about our new body and and the physical creation, new creation of first Corinthians 15. Yes, that's true. But until the new heavens and new earth, our outward self is wasting away day by day. But while our outward man fades day by day, Paul says there's one thing that can get better moment by moment. What is it? It's our new man, our inner being. The closest parallel we have to Paul's language is in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. There, you know the verse if you've known the scripture for a while. But listen again, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Now, don't you lose heart sometimes when you find out you ain't what you used to be? We don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. But our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then he connects it even in the middle of suffering for this light momentary affliction, which he just described. that doesn't seem light or momentary when you go through it, especially for Paul. But when this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we look not on things that are seen like our outman that's wasting away, but things that are unseen for the things that you see are transient, but things that are unseen are eternal. Loved ones, when we come to die, your inner person, your inner man, Paul uses anthropos, your inner person, your man is the only thing that will be left. It's the only thing. That can be renewed each day. Our prayers and our schedules can be consumed with physical health and preoccupied with mental health and self-care and the physical well-being and good grades and our kids. And yet, do our prayers, you think of yours, do they show little hunger in comparison for a transformation and holiness of the inner being that will outlast your life and outshine the sun? That's your inner being. Haven't you been around a godly saint who seems to have one foot in the grave, but another foot already in heaven? This morning, I talked to Grandma Georgia. I don't know if she can hear me right now, but if she can, I'm going to embarrass her a bit. But I said, Grandma Georgia, one thing I appreciate about you, the older you get when I'm around you, 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 your relationship with Christ seems sweeter and sweeter. I spent time with her in her home and around the table. She heard this past this 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 past week. There's somebody who hadn't taken communion in three years and she sat next to me and she groaned. Here we have in our midst a dear saint whose outward life is wasting away as she approaches the century mark. But her inner man is being renewed day by day. She's closer to heaven than many of us and a number of different levels. As it was written of, of Sibs, it can be of us that heaven was in him before he was in heaven. 
So many things at any age of life can make us bitter, suspicious of others, envious, cynical. And then one day we wake up a bitter old man or a bitter old woman. But the oldest among us in age, the oldest among us in Christ ought to be the most godly. For though the outward self perishes, they've learned to pray day by day. Oh, Lord, strengthen my inner man. What dominated the prayers of Paul for churches in his care was not to pray for that need or that need. But what here's the word, what dominated his priorities in prayer involved the strengthening of that congregation's inner being being renewed. That by the supernatural power of the spirit, he prayed, Father, according to the riches of your glory, may the believers at Ephesus be strengthened with power through your spirit in their inner being. Thus, as one person writes, churches are in urgent need of following Paul's example and praying for displays of God's power in the inner being. His primary concern for this church is for a display of God's power in the domain of being that controls our character and prepares us for heaven. Now, how would praying in light of the priority of the inner being being transformed, change the way that you pray for the member next to you? How would it change the way that you pray for your wife? How would this kind of prayer of Paul shape your most prayed for things with your kids? I, I know that none of us want anything to happen. Maybe we should, because remember, Paul puts our, our inward being ring renewed by day and the context of affliction. That, that's not the only way, but sometimes it, it is one of the biggest catalysts that God uses to renew the inner man. Um, what if we started praying, Father, do, do, hands off, whatever it takes in the life of my child so that she would be strengthened by the power of your spirit in her inner being. What if they need to fail a test, fail a grade, lose a job? What if, I didn't check with him, but what if, what if, what if they need to go away to boot camp and struggle with qualifications so deeply so that they learn to walk on their own two feet as a believer? Or fall to their knees for the first time in their life and cry out to God and say, help me, I'm a sinner. More than praying, more than, I didn't say don't, more than praying for a good school and friends and and finding a good doctor, pray that God by his spirit would strengthen their inner being. Go and learn what that means to pray for our kids. And don't miss this. I made an application to kids. Paul's not praying about kids or marriages. He's praying for a church like ours. How should Paul's prayer for power and our inner being shape the kind of request that we give as a church? Often and regularly. What does Emmanuel need most? A choir. Softer chairs. Shorter sermons. A different pastor, uh, a kid's program, uh, organize this. Uh, I don't know. But what I do know, what we must insist on praying as a church is that God, by the power of the spirit, would strengthen our inner man. And why? Why? What's the end of all this? Because inner man, what does that mean? What does that mean? Verse 17. Why is he praying this? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts, church at Ephesus, Through your active faith. Now, whatever that means, it means it's the life of the church. Church is not about us. It's about Christ. Life's not about you. It's not about me. Life is about Christ. Father, strengthen them in their being so that Christ would dwell in their hearts through their active faith and trust in you. That's a strange request. Don't you think it's a strange request? Doesn't Christ already dwell in the hearts of believers? Doesn't union in Christ mean that we're in him and he's in us? Well, yes, of course, that's true. And yet, just as Paul was not simply playing for our objective awareness of the power of the spirit, but he's praying that we would experience the transforming power of the spirit in our being. 
So Paul is not just praying for an objective awareness that Christ is in us, but for us to experience what it means that Christ is in us. I stand at the door and knock because I want to have a relationship. I want to have fellowship with you. What we're talking about is an experiential fellowship with Christ as His presence in our life touches and transforms every part of our life. We don't only need truth. We don't only need, I believe in Jesus. We need to experience Jesus. Now, you think my experiential talking is going off the rails. Let's go back to John Calvin, who people accused of lots of things that weren't true. Listen to John Calvin talking about this text. By faith... We acknowledge not only that Christ suffered and rose from the dead on our account. You see, that's the objective. By faith, we acknowledge that Christ suffered. Yes, he rose from the dead. Yes, yes. But accepting the offers which he makes of himself. Now we enjoy him as our savior. This deserves careful attention, he explains. Most people consider fellowship with Christ. And believing in Christ to be the same thing. That fellowship with we have with Christ, though, is the consequence of that faith that we put in him. Any word, the faith here that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, it's not a distant view, but it's a here Calvin's words. It's a warm embrace of Christ by which he dwells in us and we are filled with the divine spirit. Here is the deep indwelling of Christ in our hearts by faith, an active faith that treasures him. This warm embrace of Christ. The key word, I think, to think about is the word dwell. Paul uses a particularly intense word when he speaks of Christ dwelling in our hearts. In Ephesians 2, he uses a different, a synonym for this that has a a same, a same form. He says in Ephesians 2.19, we are no longer strangers and aliens. He's not talking about UFOs and E.T. and and that kind of thing. But by strangers and aliens, he means by foreigners and sojourners. He means a kind of temporary resident, somebody who's living here on a green card, a, 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 a sojourner. This isn't permanent here. But Paul doesn't use that word here when he speaks of Christ. He speaks of Christ dwelling in our hearts. Not as if Christ possessed a a green card or whatever temporary residence documentation we have. Not as if Christ has a hall pass. But as a permanent residence that makes his home in our life. He uses the word that means something more like, uh, not really, but here's the sense, like to settle down in. To make it his own. To make it his home. That's why the the New Living Translation translates it like this. So that Christ will make his home in your hearts. Now you know the difference between being in a house and being in a home, don't you? You visit somebody's house and you can't wait to get to your own home. Or uh, the first house that we had was a HUD house, a foreclosure. After we moved in, the neighbors raised their eyebrows. They'd been to church here before. One of her passed away. But they said, oh, you should have seen that place before you moved in. People, people were in full hazmat gear to remove the filth of your house, trash bag after trash bag, and they chemically bombed the place. We moved in. There were holes in the wall, and I'm not joking, crusty boogers on the wall that had to be scraped off. And we pulled out an old cabinet in cabinet stove that had a mound of roaches and thick thorns engulfed the chain link fence in the backyard. You can tell it was a lovely house to move into. Now, that was a house. But it took a while before it became a a home. Some of you helped with that. Fixing up here and there until you make it your own and. Well, Christ comes not simply to spend the night. He, he comes he comes to make our hearts his home for him. And when Christ, by his spirit, takes residence in us, writes Don Carson, he finds the moral equivalent of mounds of trash, old black and silver wallpaper and a leaking roof. And he sets about turning this residence into a place appropriate for him, a home in which he's comfortable. There will be a lot of cleaning to do and quite a few repairs and some much needed expansion. But his aim is clear. He wants to take up residence in our hearts. As we exercise faith in him.
Now, again, part of Christ making his home in our hearts comes, no doubt, as we learn to take out the trash in our life every day to put off sin, Ephesians 4, to mortify the deeds of the flesh, Colossians 3. And if you want to know what it looks like for Christ to be at home in your life, read Ephesians 4, 5 and 6. That's what the rest of the book is showing. You know what a life looks like where Christ is dwelling and it looks like a marriage that's like this and work relationships like this and church. Yes, go go read the rest of the book if you want to see what it looks like. You do put off and put on. But dadgummit, there's an aspect that won't come unless we pray for it. And really pray for it. So that we can, as Calvin wrote, not only believe in him, but enjoy him. That we might not only believe that he's there, but we have fellowship with him. That the experience in our inner being is a warm embrace in Christ, given to us by our Father, affected by the Spirit. He prays then that that the Father would strengthen us in our inner being so that Christ would genuinely take up residence within us, transforming us pervasively, one room after another, one character trait, one sin after the next. Until it's a place that somebody can look at and go, now there Christ dwells. So then, how would such words of Paul, how should they show up in our prayers? Let the, word, let the, let the words of the prayers in the Bible become your words in your prayer. How should these priorities shape the kinds of requests that we bring What we pray for. How often we pray for these things. Remember, it's been put this way and you've heard it. uh, Sometimes your own prayer list or hearing other prayer lists turns into an organ recital as you hear one failing body part after another being prayed for. But our outward man is being uh, perishing day by day. It's wasting away. Our Father wants to do this. He wants to strengthen our inner being so that by the power of His Spirit, Christ would make his home with us as the church so that we would not only know his love, but as a church, we'd experience his love more and more and be changed into his likeness because we are the temple of God. His own dwelling place. To show forth the riches of his glory and the praises of his grace who call us out of darkness into his glorious light. Oh, Father, strengthen us in our inner being that we might show Christ and enjoy. And if you ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us and he will answer.